and then we saw two black cats big black cats about the same size that picked out a sheep and a lamb and cornered it in the corner of the field and were about to attack seeing is believing and i have no proof of what i saw that day other than what i can describe it was huge it was like the weightlifter of cats welcome to big cat conversations we speak directly to people who've encountered one of britain's big cats we also discuss the bigger picture i'm rick minter and thanks for joining me Welcome, this is episode 55 of Big Cat Conversations, coming to you in mid-July 2021, if you're listening on schedule. For this episode, we are having a follow-up chat with James from Shropshire. We heard from James in the pub discussion in episode 18 of the podcasts. James is one of the most busy Big Cat investigators in Britain. Indeed, my checklist here has seven different encounters to talk through, and I know we'll have plenty more to consider beyond those incidents, including nighttime vigils and trail camera setups. So, James, good to hear from you again, and welcome back. Thank you very much. And, James, I know there's some cracking Euros footy going on tonight, which I'm missing, so it had better be worth it. I promise you I'm not looking at the scores as they come in as we're talking. Before we go through your seven encounters and incidents, Before we hear about those incidents, James, what is your main purpose in investigating and spending so much time of your life looking for big cat evidence? It's like life's challenges. It's not something I ever thought when I was a kid. Do you know, I'd like to spend time looking for big cats in the forest. I grew up knowing about big cats because I listened to so many people, river keepers, gamekeepers, game wardens, that we'd sit down on a break when we're clearing a hedgerow. Because I used to work on farms. I used to be a farm manager. And there'd be a break. We'd sit down having a cheese sandwich. And he'd say, oh, I saw that black leopard again. Just completely casual. And this is people that are really serious. And so I grew up knowing about them, not having any doubts. But then it was 30 years later. I'm 50-odd now. And that was in my teens, you know, a lot of that happened. And now, all of a sudden, having never seen one and spent so much of my time, the last 35 years since I was 15, in the forest and in the rivers, out kayaking at night, so much time fishing at night, and always outside at night, never seen one. And then, all of a sudden, on the year before last, 2019, I start walking into them. And so, the objective in the short term, going in with a camera and a head torch, is, yeah, I'd like to get a really good video one. Hopefully one, you know, I'll see the eye shine, I'll get up close to it, and it'll be sit on the path or stand there looking at me and then disappear off into the undergrowth or something like that. What I'm not really interested in is scientifically proving the existence of big cats in the UK. I'm just about going into the forest with a camera and videoing wildlife. Okay, so more of a personal thing, and incidentally, if it helps the bigger picture, then it does, and that's a nice bonus. Absolutely. Um, You know, I've found bones, uh, carcasses, toothpits, and I'll hand all those into, you know, the bigger picture. Which we'll hear about in a minute. So the concentration that's happened recently in the emphasis in your life and spending so much time on this, that was simply about stumbling upon one, seeing one, and the influence that that pretty much immediately had on you? Yeah. 
for the last couple of years, uh, the last 10 years, I've been living as a hermit up in Cheshire. And then for different reasons, I lived in my car for a couple of years. And then I eventually moved here in February 2018. And I started going out into the forest and it's silent. It's amazing. There's so much of the UK where it's just constant traffic noise. But you go around the other side of the ridge lines, and I'm not joking, it's silent. And at night, when you walk through the forest, it's unbelievable that the silence is definitely the darkness and the silence. Amazing. Yeah, well, we'll hear about that in a minute. To orientate ourselves, we are talking largely about your investigations in a key part of Shropshire, and you concentrate on one main part. We're not going to talk about uh, the, that location precisely. Obviously, we're going to talk about it, but we're not going to reveal it. So it is really a focus of work in Shropshire, isn't it? The thing is, there's so many ridgelines around here. I added it up, and there's something like 20,000 hectares. But yeah, there is just a couple that I found, well, that I've bumped into either leopards or pumas on. And so it's those that I regularly go to. But when I say I'm in the forest more or less seven nights a week at the moment, it's not all of those in the same place. Because I mean, if I'm in the same place with the same head torch, I feel I'm putting stress on any animals being in there. If I notice that the deer more running away from me rather than just standing there casually, then it's time to back off and go to a different ridgeline. Yeah, well, it's in a way that's a bit like a big cat using its territory, isn't it? It has to keep moving, so the prey is naive. I'm very aware that as much as a big cat bumping into me is scaring me, I'm also altering its behaviour. And the last thing I want to do is make that big cat go somewhere else. I've just moved here and I walked through a couple of different ridgelines. And then I walked one ridgeline, which I haven't walked before. And it's a long, it's still spring. And I spend so much time walking it that by the time I'm walking back, it's got dark. And the last path out, about 2,000 yards, is down this winding track, which is just like something out of Lord of the Rings. It's literally head-height ferns and huge fir trees, you know, stuff like that. Mm. And it's dark, and I'm walking really quietly because I haven't got a head torch, and it's pitch black. I mean, pitch black. I'm literally picking up my feet, walking quietly. And when I get to the final part of it, this last turn down, I start to hear this animal behind me. And I thought, that's a badger. I listen to it, but it's not a badger because the legs are too long and you can hear the size of it and the way it's moving. I thought, okay, it's a deer. No, it's not a deer because it's not cracking twigs. Deer, but whenever they move, you can hear the hooves. You know, you can hear them crack twigs. Well, maybe it's a dog or something, but no, it's, it's not a dog because dogs, I've seen lots of dogs that run off into the forest or farm dogs and they run up to you and they're close to you and they trot. Whenever dogs move through the forest, they don't move slowly like pacing, pace like a big cat does. And they're quite, you know, up and alert and what's going on. Mm. And this thing followed me for a good 200 yards, just pacing, and it was deliberately making sound. I thought, it's not a person. It's, I can hear it's, you know, that it's, it's sort of got four legs and it's sort of not swatting, but it's, it felt like it was following me or now that I've listened to lots of other people's encounters, I think it was guiding me away from a kill or something like that and i don't know it was a big cat because i didn't see it i can't verify it but it wasn't a badger it wasn't a deer it wasn't a horse it wasn't a dog and i'm running out of lists of things that it was also i found kills very close to where it started and where it left me where i walked out was the big scratching tree a huge scratching tree and cats are going to scratch somewhere to leave their mark to say this is my territory mm. 
So in my opinion, I'd call it an anomalous encounter at night. And I, I think, yeah, that, that was my first encounter with Big Cat, although I didn't realise it until much later. As I was walking out of the forest, I thought, am I being followed by Big Cat here? I'm getting a little bit squeaky bum time, to be honest. Mm-hmm. It was black. And you, you look at this path, it, it was beautiful. It was just like out of Lord of the Ring, you know, with huge ferns, and, and it was really black in there. Mm. And I've got a small dog on the lead, and I'm thinking, <laughs> just keep going, just keep going, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. And this is the dog that you actually sometimes carry in a backpack, is that right? Yeah, I always carry in a backpack now. I feel safer with her in a backpack, and she's happier in a backpack. I don't know why, about four years ago, she just stopped really being interested in long walks. She'll go a couple of hundred yards, and then she'll just turn and head home. And it's not that she's not fit, yeah. because as soon as we turn around, walk home, she's running. I don't know, I'm really upset about it that she doesn't like walking. What with a lot of the forestry, it's, I'm not joking, it's 45 degrees going uphill for 100 yards and there's head height ferns, there's brambles, there's the roughest terrain you can think of. And a lot of the time I'm carrying her. So I've, I've got this uh, reinforced shoulder bag, which I can swing around to the front or swing on the back. Most of the time she'll sit in there on the back and she loves it in there. She absolutely loves it. She gets curled up in there. And at night, if, if it's two or three in the morning and I'm walking around, all I can hear behind me is... <sighs> <laughs> seriously she, you know she's got her head out the side sniffing knows what's going on happy as loud fall asleep loves it does she ever pick things up that help you become alert to a cat or anything yes she, she picked up the first bone it was a, a sheep's leg oh right yeah it was before i started carrying her and we were walking along this uh, top of this ridge line and she legged it over off on the side like, hey, what are you doing come in you know and i followed her in uh crawling on my hands and knees and she came out with a sheep's bone in her mouth does she pick up the vibes of, of cats, do you think, as well? No. No, okay. I don't think so. I don't think that cats are in there enough. I get evidence of cats or seaside every three months. I mean, literally, I've put the dates up here so you can see them. And you can see that uh, mid-spring, when it starts to get warm, that's the time the cats come through the forest. And then again, now we're just coming up to a hot time. Um, in 2019, July the 2nd, I had a close encounter, 2020, July the 6th, there's a sheep kill literally 200 yards from where I've had the encounter on the same ridgeline. So that's where I'm going to be for the next two weeks. I'm going to be in there walking up and down. I'm, going to, I'm about to take my cams and move them along to that ridgeline. It makes sense that they would understand their territory seasonally. I'm on public forestry and there's times when it's busy during the day and at night, come eight o'clock at the night till eight o'clock the next morning, it's silent. I see nobody apart from one or two locals which you bump into which is fun good stuff but the, the thing is also southwest of this particular ridge line there's a huge area of private woodland uh, forestry and i think that's where they tend to stay i think they spend most of the time on private forestry come through the forest as part of their territory where where i am on the ridge lines is just a small part of one i'm going to say leopard a leopard family because i've seen a large male I've seen a smaller one and I've seen a smaller still one. And whether those are two cubs or whether I've seen a male, which has a very large territory, a smaller female, which has a smaller territory within that large territory, and a cub, which has been a female cub, in my opinion, which has been given a smaller territory within that smaller territory, if you understand what Mm -hmm. I mean. Now, listening to people that research in Africa, that seems to be standard leopard society, if you understand what I mean. That's my opinion, my opinion. 
Yeah, yeah, sure. No, this is work in progress. We understand. Um, But let's just have your justification for them being leopards. On the podcast, we tend to generally assume that the big black ones seen are black leopards. I think that is largely logical. Can we have your thought process about them being leopards? Well, they're simply big black cats, and it could be anything. It could be feral cats that have increased in size. It could be a black puma that you know, science has never heard of. But I want to, rather than call it a panther, which is vague, rather than call it a big cat, which is, again, it's vague and it goes to uh, folklore, I want to call it an animal which is scientifically recognised. And until proven wrong, as far as I'm concerned, I'll call it a leopard. That's just what I'm labelling it as. Because you feel that is most logical from what what you know and what you've seen. I want to call it a scientific name. I want to take out the hoodoo, the, you know, the rubbish the baggage yeah yeah i mean that's fun you know all the atmospheric stuff but really if if it's real i've seen i'm there right on you know with them this is a judgment there's no right or wrong i tend to call them panthers because a panther is quite a logical name for a, a large black cat and i don't think it's sort of lessening its status by calling it a panther and until we know it's a leopard uh, from dna yeah, I, I or, totally or vocalization panther is a quite quite a good generic name incidentally have you heard any vocalizations which would suggest leopard or anything else no nothing like that and i've tried i've even got caught by the police giving out um, <laughs> big cat calls from a car ah. <laughs> as a Parked up on top of the ridgeline, yeah. and it was an absolute silent night, mist in the fields, and I've got both car doors open. I've turned the car stereo up full, and I'm giving it the full, you know, the leopard, the male leopard corner. It's echoing out across the It's fantastic. And I've leaned into my car, and I'm just about to replay it, and out the corner of my eye, I see this car pull up, and I sort of quickly turn it off, bang my head as I'm coming out. And there's these two policemen looking around the corner, looking out the window at me in a very quizzical, what you doing, mate? <laughs> oh. uh, and and uh, the first time I said, oh, I was a car speaker. And they just looked at me. And then we went into a long conversation about what I'm doing. And they went, okay, mate, yeah, fair enough. Were they okay about it? They were fine, yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't go into an awful lot, but I think they knew. A lot of people around in different localities that know um, the first person I spoke to, uh, that was a story in itself. Mm-hmm. So I met him in the middle of the night in the middle of the forest. And we both looked at each other because <laughs> you know, we'd never seen anybody else there at that time. And we started talking. Of course, I said, have you seen any big cats? And he eventually came out, yeah, that his wife had seen one exactly the same spot as I'd seen one 25 years ago. Yeah. It, it's a scary one when you're talking about it. And I'm quite a nervous uppity person when I'm talking to people because I don't talk to people. And he left there with quite wide eyes, I think. He was just after owls. <laughs> when it was a short-eared owl, he came out with a puma. I know that uh, Frank Tunbridge has been in cars through the night, you know, looking out for big cat signs and listening out for big cats. And he's twice had police come and ask him what he's doing. And he's been quite straight about it. No point in telling lies, is there? Because your, your lie is going to be just as weird as the truth on this one, perhaps. And I, I think... The police were happy because at that point on the road, there's a lot of poaching goes on. Okay. And you didn't seem a poacher to them, presumably. And they were happy that there was somebody up there doing something relatively sensible because, you know, that makes their job easier. Yeah, well, certainly Frank's discussions with the police on Big Cats, he sort of had them there for half an hour talking about it because they've had an interest in it. 
I, I wish I was a better talker. Uh, I, I don't do small talk. When it comes to talking about leopards and stuff like this, I'm good. I can, as you can hear, I can go. Yeah. But when it comes to the high, so what you've been doing and trying to keep a conversation, I'm hopeless. Me too. Yeah, I'm I'm not good on banter. That's why we don't have much banter on this podcast. <laughs> we just get straight to the point. Otherwise, I'd be stumbling around. But I actually like cutting to the chase on podcasts. I think um, banter is risky on podcasts. So, yeah, yeah. Right. So we're on to encounter two. I think now are we? This was May two thousand nineteen. This was a visual of a big cat. Yeah. Yes, it was. It's been a really wet spring, and it's been cold. And then the, the first hot, you know, spring summer day where the birds come out and you can relax and you're going, oh, this is fantastic. And I'm sitting up on top of a high ridge line. 10 11 o'clock in the morning and i'm just sitting there enjoying the day listening to the birds out of the wood line at 700 yards distance comes bounding this animal and you can see i thought it was a dog i thought it was a labrador at first the way it came bounding out of the forest and had all the joys of spring of you know and then it turned to the side and i could see it, it definitely wasn't a labrador it was longer more like a red setter but it was very skinny it had the body shape although it was black it had the body shape of um, a, a cheetah mm. as it was really really super skinny and the way it bent its front legs and the way it was bounding around it, it looked like it was batting butterflies i thought what the earth is that and I watched it for a good 10 minutes. And I remember thinking, I've got my flipping camera with me. Not that at 700 yards, a bridge, small bridge camera that I had then would have been any good. And I was watching it. And then it eventually settled down uh, on this track. And so the large dot got smaller and smaller and smaller until it was just a tiny head appearing. And then it just disappeared, lying on this gravel path across the, across the field. Uh, and I remember thinking, I I've been watching a big cat here. Because uh, at 700 yards, you can see its movement. You can see what it is, but you can't know for sure. Mm. And I thought, it must be a dog. Because I, I still hadn't had the up-close encounter. I sat there maybe an hour, and it didn't reappear. That no walkers came. And eventually left thinking, well, that's unusual. I wonder what that was. And so, yeah, that, that was the second encounter. You So you didn't see a tail to help you, guide you, to reinforce it? had a long, curved tail. Oh, you did see it, yeah. Well, I say see it. It's more about movement. I'm pretty sure because it was a really good, bright, clear, sunny day. Yeah. And I see. I remember a lot. Not a classical looping tail. Don't forget, this animal was moving a lot, and it didn't stop really moving. It was almost as though it suddenly realised that it was being watched, and then it just went and lay down on the path. We can now, I think, go on to encounter three, and we'll just whiz through that one because that people can remind themselves of that one by listening to episode 18. But just give us a sort of two-minute sort of summary highlights of it. Sure. This is where it got real. Um, we're uh, July the 2nd. It's a cloudy day. It's classical a cloud and wind from the west and because i'm up high on a ridge line that, that's important i was expecting deer and i was expecting expecting to see lots of animals because you always do when it's windy uh, and i'd got about 500 yards down the lower end of the same track as that i'd seen the cat on the higher ridge and i, I was throwing the ball for the dog because i hadn't definitely seen big cats so the dog didn't go on the lead at the time and then instead of throwing the ball it dropped at my feet and about the same time she legs it off into the bushes after the ball and then i look up the path and there's this black animal which i thought was a dog i thought it was oh somebody's got their dog off the lead or maybe it's a you know one of the farm dogs so i walked over to put her on the lead stood up it's turned to its right my left to go down the ridge line 
I then look, glance down, like one down up in a split second. And the split second that I look down and look up, it's gone, leapt 15 feet across the path. And as I look up again, I just see its backside as it's tucking its legs in to leap again to go down into the undergrowth. And in that split second, I see massive muscle and this huge ridgeline and the, the tail coming down and the bit that flicks out. It was literally a second after that, all my thoughts went dot, 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 ching, 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 big cat. And at that point, literally the whole world rushed right into me. It was like, I'm here, it's right here, right now. That's 25 yards away. I've measured it out since pacing it. Yeah, I wanted to go straight up there. And at the same time, a small dog and I wanted to get out of there. I didn't know where it was going, what was going on. And eventually I backed my way out of there. You, you know, the rest went and spoke to the forestry and yeah, et cetera. That one you did see close enough to make a judgment, perhaps, about whether it was a leopard, did you? Did, did it seem... No, because I didn't see the head. Oh, OK. Yeah, fair enough. You see the black mm. back of a big cat, and that could be any big cat, really. Yeah. For me, it's the head. It's that long curvature drawn out of the head, seen from the side, which makes it a leopard. It had a long tail. I remember the way it stuck out the back, because for a split second I was looking at the tail sticking out the back and thinking... Why has it got its feet on the wrong way round? Because huh. the tail was out the back and it looked like feet. And I was so confused. And what? Hey. Eh? And then I realized that was the tail. And it was a second after that, it went big cat. Boom. Everything got real. Yeah. Really real. And did that one know you were around? Was it reacting and avoiding yes. you? Yeah. I realized now, looking back at it, it was at the top of this path, just behind cover. And it was just observing us and thinking what to do and it decided the best thing to do was to cross the path and disappear and that tells you an awful lot about big cats by now then this was all building up and you were starting to get involved in actively looking for evidence is that right is this when it all changed yeah it completely changed Literally two days after that I because I, I drove out and I thought I'm never going back in there and I said that to the um, forestry commission. And I sat at home, I thought, you, you can't, you've got to go back. So I grabbed my umbrella, my camera, and I went right up to the back and searched every inch of that ridgeline. So I felt comfortable and safe. Do you understand what I mean? It's, it's an odd one. I needed to go right to the back of that ridgeline and walk along every inch of it, very loudly, I might add. I didn't want to bump into a leopard. Yeah. You know, I just wanted to clear it in my mind. It's like, right, I've walked that. Okay, we're back in control. Let's go. That was partly closure and partly confidence building, was it? Yes, yes, yeah. very much so, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you hadn't really been on the lookout for signs and paw prints and scratch marks and things, had you? But it all became much more focused uh, from then on. From then on, the other two suddenly fitted in and I suddenly went, that was a big cat, that was a big cat that was followed out of the forest. Yeah. From then on, I started walking through, I, I changed my behaviour from going at night before that I regularly walked in the forest at night. Uh, I'd regularly get there at dark and walk through before I listen to the hours, and it's fantastic. And that changed, and I started to walk in the forest lunchtime, literally right in the middle of the day. And as soon as it, the sun started to head down, I was like, I, I was like being on a vampire film, so I'm <laughs> getting out of here right now, you know? This leads me on. Let me just quickly go yeah. into the scratching tree. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I noticed what I thought was kids had been marking a tree and it looked like um, some kids had got five or four uh, Stanley blades and sort of sellotaped them to like a, um, a rake or something and gouged out this tree. 
And I suddenly realized, hang on a minute, you, you don't suppose that's a scratching tree? <laughs> and I went and had a look at it closely, and it's a scratching tree. It's a scratching tree and three quarters. It's There's so many fine needle-like marks on it. Mm. Also, that tree is almost halfway between what I call the leopard territory and up further to the north, where twice I've seen a puma cross the road. I am being objective and thinking, could that be a, a marking post between those two areas, de demarcation? But either way, I'll, I'll hopefully we'll be able to show pictures of that if you want to put them on the site, because it's really impressive. And you, you can see when you look up close, there are these needle-fine marks, which are either kids with a Stanley knife or it's a pickaxe. because it's not deer, because deer, I've seen deer make loads of marks, and they're all half a centimetre or so, you know? Yeah, and it's too public position-wise to put trail cameras near, isn't it? I know that you've been um, advised that and you've thought that. And it was doing the trail cameras that I came up to Encounter 4. Come October... And I'd worked out that that tree was being updated after rain or roughly every two weeks. And so every time it rained every two weeks, I'd go there, put the trail camera down. I'd go there just before dark, put the trail camera in, and then sit in there till about nine o'clock in the evening, make sure nobody was going. Just go home, come back six o'clock the next morning, sit there till nine or ten o'clock when the first dog walkers went in, then nip in there and pick up the trail camera. And I'll do that four days in a row after rain and after sort of two weeks. Basically, the trail camera broke and you know, the same shenanigans that everyone has when you try and get big cameras on a trail camera. But on October 28th, 2019, I'm driving up there. It's a cold, frosty day. At 6.50 a.m., the, the, the clocks have just gone back or forward or whatever they've done. And I'm just coming around a corner on at 70 yards, a puma crosses the road, a silver-gray puma. And I look, I thought, oh, it's a deer. Oh, no, hang on. it's got a long looping tail with a black dot on there. Anyway, I look at the haunches. This is in two seconds. I look at the haunches. There's these huge, massive cougar, mountain lion, puma haunches. And the last thing I see is it's trotting across the road are these huge paws flipping underneath it as it's happily trotting across the road. My mind just went, bong. <laughs> Literally, I thought, mm. this is ridiculous. You've waited 50 years. It was like one of those times when you just throw the book out the window. That's, that's it, we're yeah. done. I'm in cloud cookie land, obviously. Uh, and I sat and thought about it, and here's the important part about this. But why is uh, Puma, or any big cat, going into a cold, damp, northwesterly facing ridgeline? And it's because the sun, in my opinion, this is, mm. um, the sun was coming up directly behind it. The sunrise was not 6.59. And at 6.50 a.m., it was going down into a deer bedding area. And I think it was using the sun behind it coming up over the ridgeline to maybe ambush any late wakers. That's opinion. That was its territory. That must have been quite a shock if you were expecting any big cat. You were expecting a black one, and then that one turns up. I didn't bother telling anyone. I thought, right, I'm going to put a trail cam there because Rick's not going to believe me if I, you know, <laughs> tell him, by the way, that I just see the puma. You're not going to believe this, you know? Um, yeah, and but nothing. Yeah. No, nothing at all. Lots of badges, lots of deer. But I, th I think that that puma, when you look at the territory of that puma, or rather look at that ridgeline and where I've seen that puma and the topography of that, I think it has a huge range north of there and it goes through there September or October because the following year, September 27th, I see the same shape size animal, but a different color because it's at night and my headlights going the opposite way on the lower road, the other side of the forest. 
Yeah, well, let's have that one because that's Encounter 6. We'll go back to Encounter 5 in a minute because let, let's keep on, on with the Puma. So this was 9.45pm, yeah? A year later, more or less, I'm coming out of the forest and I'm driving down on the flat road and an animal, a large animal, crosses the road in front of me. I think it's a deer, but it's not a deer because it's crouching and it's got very strong legs. And the way it moves across the road, it's just like a big cat moves before it jumps. So it's got this crouching motion and it also has this hugging motion as though it's really powerfully moving along the road. Forgive me, I'm doing lots of motions that nobody can see here to describe. Um, yeah, so it's it's really powerfully. It's, it's like three feet are on that road at any one time. I don't see the tail, and it's mid-brown, not silver-grey, but my headlights are not particularly bright. And that was about 100 yards. It's right at the limit. But judging by the, the, the movement of it, first thing I thought is deer. No, it's not a deer. It doesn't have spindly legs, and its head's down, not up. And the way it's crouching and moving and this power behind its movement it's not a deer. The second thought I had was, could it be a golden retriever? Not a golden retriever. What's the biggest Labrador? Uh, you know, the long-haired ones, they're quite large. And I thought, maybe it's one of those. And I thought, no, because they would have a bouncy, you know, movement and they'd have their head up. You know, I thought, no, it's a puma. And when I look at the map, I'll show you the map sometime. Hmm. Right where it came out on that road, there's a gully leading up into the forest and then you go through a thick bit of forest and the forest comes out on the other side exactly where the puma goes into where i saw the puma the year before so you can see that there's a territorial line that a big cat would follow do you think it was the same one i think it's possible completely different colors but one was in morning in sunlight and one was at night time yeah okay was it aware of the car? Was it aware of you, do you think? Or was it just doing what it was doing regardless? Both crossings, the, 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 the cat was aware of the car, but it was both times they were, it was supremely confident moving 70 yards and 100 yards consecutively in front of the car, not consciously taking into consideration the car. Yeah, okay. And, and the tail uh, on these ones, on the Pumas? Didn't see it. I saw, saw the first one, yeah. clearly saw it. That was the first thing I saw. Because I thought it was a deer. But hang on. What's the deal? I've got this leaping tail. I've got a big tip on the end of it. It's black. And yeah, it went from there. And it was just a classic cougar mountain lion form, shape, movement. Very big. Colour, yeah. Those hind legs were really... You can it's, When you see something move, you can really get a feel for the power behind it, if you understand what I mean. Yeah. Some animals, that, that they're kind of spindly along. Some sort of pet dogs don't have any power, but you, you watch a, a big cat, like a fully grown big cat, and there's immense, awesome power and grace with their movements. Yeah, and those back legs are there for that. Yeah, you look at any picture of a puma, cougar, mountain lion, and they've got these huge back legs designed for propelling them up steep hills. Okay, well, I know we've got toothpits to cover relating to that one. Do we do the toothpits now, or do we go back to Encounter 5? Yeah, Encounter 5 is a completely different area. I've been up in a large town having a night out using the internet and just completely doing nothing. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm driving home along a main road. I'm coming around the corner, and there's two trees, and there's huge eye shine coming out of one of the trees. And I thought, oh, there's deer in on high embank behind the trees. It's all in like a couple of seconds as I'm going around the corner. And I thought, oh, there's no, there's no high embank. Is, is there deer? No, there's not. Flipping out, what's that? And so there's trees, there's no high embankment, and there's large eye shine, like from the size of a stag or a deer 
staring out at me from 20 foot up a tree. It's not an owl. Sheep don't climb up there. And if it did, it would have had the help of something else to get up there. It's it's not deer. What is it? Somebody stuck a couple of marbles up there? <laughs> uh, in my opinion. I, I know that's a long stretch, but I'm deleting everything that it could be. Do you see what I mean? First thought, it's sheep. No, it's not sheep. Is it deer? No, it's not deer. It's not an owl. Yeah. Uh, and I'm running out of lists of things could, it could be. And people have seen numerous big cats around here and people have seen them up trees. Yeah, alternative explanations have got to be gone through, and then you've got to come to this sort of Occam's razor moment, hasn't it? What is it most practically likely to be? Again, I didn't talk about that one for a long, long time. I thought it was pointless. By the time you're getting to encounter four and five, are you starting to think it's more difficult to mention uh, these numbers of sightings because people are even less inclined to believe you? But it's, as Alan said in... Uh, one of the episodes, Alan and Forrester Dean, it's just time in the woods. You know, if you spend plenty of time, you give yourself more of a chance and you make your own luck. And this, that by now, this is what's happening to you, isn't it? I, I think it's time in the woods in the right area. Yeah. I think that the pumas are and leopards, big cats, they're very area specific. I think there's certain areas where there are. But at the same time, honestly, I've spent my whole life, every week, week in, week out, I spent at least two nights out under the stars mm. and many more times I've been out kayaking at night and I've had otters swim right by me. One of my favourite hobbies is getting my canoe, putting a mattress in the bottom of it, putting a sleeping bag and a pillow and me and the dog get in the bottom of that and we just drift down the river looking at the stars and the amount of wildlife you see, owls flying overhead, otters swimming past. And I regularly used to do that and I never saw a big cat, despite even going to areas where I, in the fens for example when one might have been seen i'll go have a week there you know camping mm. never saw one it's like london buses isn't it you know what i mean you wait for ages and then four come along at once well this is why other people like stalkers and naturalists and and ecologists and other people can uh, claim you know, there can't be any big cats because i'm out all the time and i've never encountered one and i should have done by now i completely sympathize with that in your area, doing what you do at your times of day, do you think it would be be more likely they would have had sightings by now doing repeating your kind of activity? Yes, I've spoken to people that have, but I listen to so many vlogs for people that do photography and videos. And I think, why don't more people that go out early in the morning with a camera and sit there quietly, why don't they get sightings? Or maybe they do and they don't tell people about it? Do you think it's because it's more on your radar now that you've noticed them? Pretty much all of those sightings, including the up-close one, if I didn't know big cats were a possibility, you could have just passed it off as a dog or something like that. Well, you you said you were ready to pass them off as deer, weren't you, some of them? That's the first thing you do. That's the first thing I do. Is yeah. What is it most likely? It's a dog, right? Is it a dog? No, is it a sheep? Is it deer? Did you see what I mean? You go through what it's most likely to be first. Yeah, yeah. You were telling me that in your nighttime vigils and nighttime wanderings, there's very much less activity in the dead of night, and key times are the two hours after dusk and the hour either side of dawn. Is that about right? And it, it is, there isn't much around in the middle of the night. I do notice this, certainly recently, from 10 o'clock, there'll be certainly the first two hours, there's lots of deer moving around, getting into bedding areas. And so certainly about, I reckon about midnight to two o'clock, it's quieter. You can walk around and there's just nothing happening. 
and then it picks up again from two to about four, five, six. It, it depends on so many things like atmospheric pressure, weather and moon phases and stuff like that, which all influence animal behaviour. Yeah, and, w- and windy nights, you know, big cats thinking that they've got the upper hand on windy nights. I tend not to go in on windy nights, to be honest. It's, it's just so dangerous from falling trees and stuff like that. Sure. We need to do tooth pits before Encounter 7, is that right? Yeah. The tooth pits, there's so many bones and skulls and rib cages in the sky. I call it the Hammer House of Horror Scully. You walk through it and it's just bones from dead animals everywhere, you know? And I found one of the tooth pits in that. And the other one, there's a certain stretch of forestry on a ridge line which is close to Bracken and it's got everything you need it's got gorge at the top it's got a steep ridge line nobody went there in 29 i mean nobody and there's sheep that regularly get close to it and you go in there and you have to walk over the bones in places something has been in it because they're, they're, they're not fresh kills you can tell when you walk along a ridge line and it's foxes because foxes will take off a leg bone or you know a head and you'll get it scattered evenly all over the ridge line whereas this has definite kill areas that look from one 10 to 15 to 20 foot circle, you, you'll find a kill. There's old kills and there's new kills. And I've found very fresh kills in there numerous times. One in the middle of January, right between my cameras, two sheep come up dead. Either the sheep jumped the fence on its own or I'm going to say a leopard grabbed the sheep and took it off into the forest to eat. And it was killed, or rather eaten, under a classic predator style. There was um, a low overhanging tree. The ground underneath it was just raised. And I noticed this. I find kills in either little hollows, which uh, I feel that a a predator feels comfortable in that they can tuck themselves in the way, or on a raised mound under low branches where they they feel they can look all the way around. And, yeah, there was two sheep killed, one in amongst the gorse in the field, completely demolished and the other one it had been initially killed under and eaten out under these branches and then it had been dragged off by foxes or something and the main body of it had been pulled off in different places sorry toothpits and so the second lot of toothpits on the same day i found them in amongst all these bones in in this area some of these toothpits you found, we the people we share them with include Jonathan McGowan because he was actually the person who prompted the Royal Agricultural University study to get going because he supplied them through me yeah. to that um, lab. And we hear about that in episode nine of the podcast, people who haven't picked up on toothpits yet. It's the back sort of carnassial tooth cusps that make these little notches these pock marks in the bones and they can make a triangular pattern and that is the one that is the big cat evidence it's like a poor man's dna and the initial reaction you've had from the lab at the royal agriculture university because they didn't have a student working on it last year they haven't actually gone through the uh, formal process of uh, judging these ones yet but it's in the sample set now to be considered but i remember jonathan's reaction to the photograph saying how sharp they were rather than a round pock mark these ones they've got a more sort of sharper triangular pock mark and jonathan was suggesting and i think it's a good point he's making is that maybe it was a younger cat because they're sharper teeth i can correlate that the, the smaller black cat that was about the size of a cheetah or a red setter that sort of size that was 
500,000 yards from there. And the sighting number seven, which we'll talk about in a minute, mm. that was exactly there. In fact, the, 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 the photo that I have of it, the, the eye shine, you know, 70 yards up a ridge line, was literally 20 yards from where I collected the bones. And, that. and there's scat- bones scattered all through there. Hopefully it was um, pleasing to find something which you could pass on to a university in Britain to analyse. Yeah, yeah. In the deer one, that was very fresh, and that was after a storm. It's definitely worth noticing. After a storm, eating out, very, we, you saw it, but it had lots of very small, fine black hair all over it. Interesting. Well, we did consider swabbing that. Yeah. It's a big decision you've got to make. When you see a carcass, it's, do I go onto the carcass and pick it to pieces and see what I can find, or do I quickly leg it home or go off, get a camera and not what I call stink out the area with my scent all over it? Yeah, I think the prize of getting a photo of the culprit coming back, if the culprit was a big yeah, cat coming yeah. back, is is um, important. I certainly, my contacts on mountain lion work in the uh, United States have said they reckon every time you see a suspicious deer carcass that could have been a big cat, put cameras on it because the cats don't always come back because they don't always need to. And they know this from the radio-collared mountain lions they're researching and observing and monitoring but they know that some of them do come back. So it's worth trying. I think we must put trail cameras over suspicious deer carcasses as much as we can. Yeah. I put a trail camera on for a week before a couple of people who are now friends of mine found it and I had to move it. The first animal on that carcass on the, on the first night was a fox. And this fox comes in and it's on like a cat on a hot tin roof. If you can imagine this fox coming in, uh, head down, sniff, 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 sniff. God, there's something really good here, but I don't, I'm scared. And he's up looking around. He's got his head on a swivel. And he's got like one leg in the air and then hop into the other leg and then hop him back again. Mm. And it goes out. And then five minutes later, it comes in around the other side and it's doing the same thing. And it's looking around. It's got its head on a swivel. Sniff, sniff, sniff. God, this sounds amazing. But I'm too scared because I can smell there's something really terrifying on it. And it disappears. It comes in twice and it really wants to have a go at it. But it leaves and it leaves it alone for another couple of nights before it eventually comes in and have us a munch on it and i've seen that on my own cameras heard it from other people uh, including foxes absolutely on the first sniff turning and fleeing yeah <laughs> dogs came in on this one and the, the dogs there was no reaction there was a doberman was the first dog come in and typically just pulled it right out of position <laughs> that was it yeah. forget everything else all i can see is the tip of one leg after that yeah even from watching that, the way that nature and dogs scavenge and react, it's still interesting, isn't it? Trail cameras over carcasses is an important part of this work. Mm-hmm. I know that we've got stuff to talk about beyond the encounters. So a really humdinger of an event in May, just gone, May 2021. So do tell us about yeah. it. Oh, this is amazing. So we're off at the back of lockdown and my car's out of MOT, so I'm cycling into the forest. I park up my bike. It's Saturday night. It's about 11 o'clock that I get in there and I'm walking up this huge ridge line. I've redone all the cameras and then I'm just standing up top and it's such a beautiful night. There's this, there's this wind blowing. It's been really wet previously and really damp and misty. And with this wind that's coming, it's just cleared out. And I thought, you know, what? I'm here now, so I'm going to really enjoy a beautiful walk along this ridge line. And so dogs you know, snoring away in my rucksack. And I walked down the end of the ridge line, down to the bottom, and I walked back up along the sort of lower area. And I get right to where my bike is, and I didn't see any deer. This is the big thing. In that whole valley, there's always deer there. And this night, there was no deer there. And I, I get back to the starting point, and uh, to the right of me, I look across the meadow, 
and there at 70 yards, there's um, eye show. And I thought, oh, that's a deer after all. And so I look round, and then the eye show ducks back down again. I thought, that's unusual. Deer don't normally do that. And I did a, you know, try and get it. And the eye show comes back up again. It's a, just a general squeak. Yeah. Dog loves it. Everything loves it. You know? Anything gets an instant reaction from that. Uh, even deer. And so I, I squeak, it sticks his head back down, looks at me again, and then sticks his head back down. It dismisses me. I thought, what's going on? <laughs> this is unusual. And then it sort of comes back up and it looks like it's just finished something. And you can, all I can really see is the eye shine because I don't have my new camera. Uh, I've just got the old camera. Mm hmm. And I'm looking at it through the eyes, and it's sort of shaking at the head or something. And then it's, I don't know, it kind of stands up, takes two steps, and then I saw this weird movement, and suddenly it's 15 feet closer, and it's just jumped the gully, 15 feet across the gully, and moves up the meadow towards me. Uh, and I still can't really see what it is, because the eye shine is kind of whiting it out, if you know what I mean. I can see a dark shape behind it. I don't know what it is. I think maybe a fox, maybe. You don't, you, honestly, you don't expect Puma leopard is never the first thing in my mind. And then it turns off to its, uh, its left and heads to my right up the meadow. And at that point, I can see what looks to me to be sort of a silvery gray color. But I realize now that was the water or light from my torch refracting light on the fur, from the water from the fur. Anyway, the, the way it's moving, it's like it's got it in its mind that it's been caught and now it's slinking off. It doesn't like being in the torchlight. It doesn't like being caught. This animal does not like being centre of attention. It's quite a small animal. It's, mu it's much smaller than the pumas and any other animal. I, I estimate the haunches, estimate the haunches to be 16 to 18 inches. It did cross my mind at some point, maybe it's a lynx, you know. Anyway, it slinks three quarters of its leg height and it's kind of slinking off and it's it's like it's like it's been caught it's got its tail right down and it's sticking its head down and it's heading straight into the thickest grass uh, and i see it slink off up the meadow and i thought you know that that's one of them it's a big cat again isn't it <laughs> um and it disappears and i thought right and i have to confirm to myself you're about to run off into the darkness after a big cat yeah and i went yeah let's go so i picked up the dog I, th I think I'd put the dog down because we were about to go back to the bike. So I yeah. picked her up, much to her consternation, she's just half growling at me. He said, what are you doing, mate? Um, and I run as best you can. You know, when you've got um, a bag on it and you've got your camera, and you're sort of doing the half running, everything bouncing all over the place. I'm about 20 yards up. And then I see it turn to the right and really quickly, powerfully, it comes up the meadow and then crosses over this three-foot-high fence with barbed wire on the top of it and it doesn't do a bunny hop it doesn't jump like deer do it just comes over it so it's not there and then it powers up um the side of this ridgeline and power is the word foxes scoot mm -hmm. you know they've got a different movement to them yes. deer tend to bounce a little bit and trot and run this had a steady eye shine and powerful move. it's really hard to describe you just get this feel of power behind it it was just very, very fast, very, very steady. Because it weaving in and out, as in because the eye shine blurt out for a second. Then it got to the top. This is 70 eyes. It took maybe a couple of seconds to power. It wasn't running, so there was no bounding. It's such a difficult description to make to, to describe how such a powerful live animal moves so fast up a steep ridgeline. And it gets to the top. It's 70 yards up there, and it stops. And then it looks down at me. And it's still a long way down the ridgeline. It's good. 50 or 60 yards down and, and it starts coming towards me 
it's in amongst the gauze and so it sort of disappears and comes out and I can see the eye shine getting closer and I start to walk my way back down towards my bike and I and right in the back of my mind not conscious of but I did feel a certain I wish I had the bike kick to stand in front of you know to so I could just protect myself just a a longing to be behind my bike or just to have something that I wasn't quite so naked type of thing. Was it aware that you were observing it and sort of pursuing it? It was very aware. It had been caught in the act. It did not like it. It didn't like having the lower hand. It did a 180 on me. It came round, went up the meadow, up the uh, ridgeline and came round to where it thought it would be behind me and 70 yards up a ridgeline. So it had the upper hand and it could decide then what it was going to do. I've never seen a fox patrol around me i've got folks on video and they just turn and they scoot off the adult ones yeah yeah anyway so it stopped and this whole process took maybe eight minutes i think something something like that it was really fast when it went up and then it took its time when it got to the top and it just came along and looked down at me and all of a sudden i've got about 10 15 photos of basically black with a blurry background of sort of green mush and tiny little dot of eye shine and right at the last, um, it was looking down at me, and I went, <coughs> it sort of disappeared. Then it looked back, and at the same time it looked back, I managed to get off a, a photo, and you know, two second delay where it stopped just as it was looking at me, just for a second. And it's still blurred. You can see in the photo, it's sort of turning its head. But yeah, at least I managed to get that one, the two second exposure on the old camera. I didn't have a tripod or anything, I just took the camera just in case, really. So I was really pleased about that. And then it disappeared off into the night. And I did think, go after it. And I thought, you're joking, mate. That's 70 yards up the ridgeline with head height bracken and gauze. Yeah, there's also, you're never going to get up. You could be a mess by the time puffing and puffing. You know, it's gone. Yeah. I was so elated. I knew exactly what that was. What were your range of emotions and what was your uppermost emotion? Because it was small, I never felt intimidated at all. Yeah. As it was happening until it disappeared, I was just concentrating on what to do. But I did feel a longing for my bike. And I did, when I ran up there, so ask myself, you're about to run into the darkness after a big cat, right? And I had to reaffirm, yeah, let's go. Um, so, yeah, there, there was a certain trepidation to it. But, yeah, then it disappeared and I walked back to the bike and my feet didn't touch the ground. I got on the bike and instead of leaving the forest or thinking, it's going to follow me. No, it had gone off. It, yeah. it was on its way. It was hunting somewhere else for something else. And I cycled off and I went over to the other side of the forest and um, had an encounter watching some deer and then eventually cycled home just as the sun was coming up. Literally, I, I didn't even notice the way I, I flew. You know, I was just like sitting on a feather duster type of thing. I was such a good mood at it. In, in the video that I sent you of the recreation, um, you see that's on my new camera. And so it's all very, very visible. If you see it in real life, all you can see out there is just a very dull grey. And it's the high ISO on the, the Sony A7S, which clears everything up. On that recreation video, it looks so much brighter that you can see every detail. But if anybody looks up Sony A7S at night, you'll see it turned night into day. It's amazing. Okay. What sort of price are they? I got this one, a second-hand original one, for £650. Okay. Serious bit of kit, then. But they're onto the Mark III nowadays, and that's three grand or something for the new ones. But yeah, you can get a second M1 off eBay for £500. And since then, I've bought a couple of lenses. I've just got a brand new 300 millimeter lens. And it's, boy, is it heavy. It's two and a half kilos looking around. Yeah. To go with it, you need a lens with um, a 
that low f stop of like 2.8 because if you've got um, a lens which is like an f5 or f6 and a half or something like that it won't give you the light that you need okay you're making me think when you're sort of watching these cats uh, melt away i guess you're not hearing predator alarm calls because it's time of day there aren't many birds active whereas if you're in daytime you might well hear predator alarm calls from birds and deer but do you ever hear that no no i have heard predator alarm calls at other times when i've been in the forest and sort of backed out because there's one time when i first went to that that ridge line that i've just been talking about when i first went in there uh, i was sitting up the top start to hear bird predator calls down the other end and they got closer and closer and i thought something's coming up this ridge line. i'm getting out of here and i kind of lost the nerve a little bit because i couldn't see what was coming up so, yeah, I have heard them, but I've not heard them on any of those encounters. I mean, two of the encounters I was driving, uh, one was at 700 yards. I'm, I don't know why I didn't hear anything from that first encounter. It was in the night, but it was silent. There was nothing about. The cats have always been stealthy and quiet. No, but I mean, I didn't hear any raven or crow yeah. or anything like that. And all of this is helping your confidence. So after the first couple of sightings, you perhaps would not have even thought about going closer to the cat, whereas now you are thinking of going closer. After that third encounter where it got real, I didn't go into the forest at night for a long time, six months minimum, before I started going in there. And then, for example, when I'd get confidence up, and then when I saw that huge deer kill ripped to pieces, I went, <laughs> I'm not getting mad, maybe, you know. And it comes and goes. Mostly now I'm good, I'm, I'm on it, but we have to talk about psychology. I realised this, I'll do this one now. Hmm. I had a long six-hour walk. It was a couple of nights ago. It was last week sometime. And it was a different ridgeline, completely different. And I started at the top, and it was three ridgelines. I walked down three, four, and I just kept on going because the countryside looked better, and I, but I hadn't seen any deer. And I thought, they've got to be here somewhere. They'll be all holed up somewhere. There'll be a load of animals somewhere. And that's where you're going to find the predators. And I kept on going, turn to come back. And I just ran out of steam. Everyone's been on a long hike. And at night, when you run out of steam and you've got nothing, and you get a bit emotionally down and you get start to get paranoid and you just get a bit all over the place. And I was walking back thinking, I just want to be at home in bed. Why did I do this? I've got so far to go. My neck's killing me. My back's killing me. I want to be at home. Then I suddenly realized, hang on a minute, what are you here for? And I suddenly realized, you're in an emotional state your head's down, you're not concentrating, you're not looking, and you're in the forest looking for a leopard at night. I thought, no, well, stop. Deep breath, up, look up. When I'm in the forest at night, if I'm looking to engage and get close enough to a leopard, I've got to be 110% on it. Because do you think that that cat, if I'm a bit all over the place, is going to pick up straight on that? And that might make the difference between me being able to get a good photograph of it or having an accident if you know what i mean yeah it really shook it home to me i thought you cannot do what you're doing you can't sulk head up back into it deep breath and let's get on with it yeah man up yeah and the leopard will know whether you're manning up or not yeah. <laughs> um well that takes us on quickly to behavior um i want to come back to cameras in a minute but as far as you have experienced these cats are just being like they should be in the textbooks. They are wary and shy and nervous of human behaviour. They want to keep away from us. They're not seeing us as a priority on the menu. They are sticking to what they know, deer and other game, and trying to avoid us. Is that how you're experiencing it? Yeah. 
I mean, if anybody, if there's a skeptic listening, somebody would say, look, Rick, you're just putting words in his mouth. Of course, he's going to agree with you. But yes, I do. I, do. I feel that if cats had been released specifically from close contact with humans, one would have turned up hungry and tired. Maybe one would have had an accident and attacked somebody. And we've had none of this. All of the cats that I see or hear or listen about are very fit and healthy. They avoid humans. They're very good at avoiding humans. And the encounters I've had, the cat was so confident and intelligent. The first one, it escorted me out of the forest, mm. my opinion. Um, the the close-up encounter, it just looked at me and decided, no, I'm not bothered. And it turned and disappeared. It just intelligently decided not to engage with me. So I didn't intimidate it and it knew every inch of its territory and this last one it did a 180 on me and gained higher ground it was tactically aware of exactly what it's doing saw me dismissed me and went on its way it all seems to be animals that have been here a long time i mean a long time they're confident and know their place yeah animals are very intuitive if i squeak at a fox once it won't come back a second time it won't come back and animals learn very quickly. And so we seem to have these big cats which keep bumping into people. And I think a large, fully grown big cat, once it has its own territory, it knows not to bump into people. And so it makes sense to me that the animals that are bumping into people and we're seeing wandering around, quite bullshit because it's a young big cat. That is a young male that has been pushed out of its territory and it's having to wander daytime or unusual times in territory that it doesn't know therefore it's more likely in my opinion to bump into people fair enough okay better move on back to cameras and trail cameras this time we had two episodes ago will burrard lucas the wildlife photographer who filmed the black leopard in kenya talking about how he sets his cameras up and how he prepares and i said to him will do you do anything to descent them and he said no that is futile they will weather in within a month or so and the animals get to know them and decide whether they're a threat or not and eventually get used to them and put up with them so i know that you take the opposite view um why is that and what do you do to to descent the cameras? Well, firstly, I mean, if I had a camera that, that had a big flash, I probably wouldn't bother descending it because it's got a big flash yeah. and there's no point. Whereas for mine, I, you know, I've got no glow cameras. The idea with descending it, or it's, it's not that I'm not going to have any scent. I'm very conscious that wherever I go, there's scent going down. And so I think really carefully about how I approach a camera and from what angle, whether it's 90 degrees, whether I need to come up from the front. I don't want to walk along a path and give a leopard or any big cat the chance to smell me and a chance to decide, no, there's something dodgy going on here. A cat might go through a territory once every other year, you know. It's so rare and I, I, I need to get that cat the first time it does. Because if it marks it off, and I'm following your words here, once it's marked uh, cam camera off, it might not come back for it. Foxes, right? I had a fox see one of my cameras and it jumped and it moved and ran off. That was at one o'clock in the morning. Lunchtime, it went past another camera on the same ridgeline, went straight up, sent it on the spot, looked into the camera. You could see in its mind, it was going, I know you, you're no problem. And it walked off. And so it had learned and it had probably seen another of my camera in between. So the third time it was okay. Problem is if a leopard only comes into a territory once every couple of months, did you see what I mean? Yeah, you want to get it while you can. It takes so much more to learn. And I want to catch that cat first time, not third or fourth time. 
Yeah. So what you do to cameras, you leave them in a bag of pine needles, is that right? And then you camo them up. Nowadays, what I do is I coat them in Gorilla glue, which doesn't really smell. And then I dip them in bark granules and pine needles. And they look fantastic. It's so dull and becomes virtually invisible. Also, when I put them up on the tree, I try to break up the square outline. When you look at a camera sideways, it's very, very square and unnatural when it sticks out. And so I use brown hairbands that I buy from Tesco, put two of those round the camera and stick long bits of unusual shaped bark in each side. And that way it just looks like an extension of the tree. Um, and yeah, I'll stick moss on them and I'll really camo them up. But when I'm standing there doing the camera, if I don't want scent to be down, I'll have a sprig of pine and I'll dust that around so that that resin will impregnate the scent. And I'll also put on a three foot square piece of tarpaulin. So my scent is falling on the tarpaulin and I'll wash my hands or put gloves on and everything I can do to make that camera as unobtrusive as possible. I'll do because it's not a flash and because I want to get it first time. Ideally, if, if a cat was to go past it once a night, then in the three days or four days, it might have worked out that it's okay. Yeah. This is also because you are in deep rural location. I mean, I've made the point on the podcast that if you're next to a motorway or ne- next to lots of human smells anyway, I don't think it's quite so sensitive an issue. Absolutely. What I'm trying to do is not trigger an animal's suspicion. Yeah. When I'm filming badgers, I can stand there 10 foot away from a badger with the, the head torch on it filming it. If it smells me or I make one foot on the gravel, it knows and it associates it with humor and it's gone. Yeah. Big cats, I'm trying to, if, if I'm on a path which has got people on it, it's, it's not a big problem. And there's sometimes it is completely futile because you know they're going to smell them. So what I do, here's my routine. Before I go into the forest, if I don't want my scent to be in an area, I'll have a shower before I go into the forest. I'll wear clothes that haven't got any cooking smell on them or anything like that, that I kept separately. Um, and I'll walk very slowly, very slowly into the forest so I don't sweat. And when I get into the forest 100 yards away, I'll stop and I'll completely relax. And, you know, there's no perspiration or anything coming out. I'll grab a whole load of leaves and detritus and rub that all over me. I you know, cleanse my hands with it. So my hands are smelling of the forest and rub that vigorously all over my trousers, under my armpits, literally not in my hair or, you know, not in my T-shirt, but on the outside. And then I'll get um, a couple of sprigs of pine needles, you know, a a spray from a a pine needle tree. Does that make sense? A spray? Yeah, yeah. A lower branch. And I'll whip that around a tree a couple of times or a post so all the pine needles will break up and it's emitting uh, resin, which is a very, very powerful, lovely smell. And I'll dust that around myself. And if I'm really fastidious, I'll take the branch with me and use it as a dust and behind me i'll dust that back and forth so all of the scent which is coming off of me it's much lower if you imagine scent on any path there's like a scale of one to ten there'll be deer there'll be badger there'll be all sorts of things and including that is mine and if i haven't descented myself my scent initially is 10 just you see what i mean but if i've descended myself it brings it right back down the scale so any animal going through there is then much less wary of me. They can smell that there's human coming in, but it's much lower in the scale of things that they need to be scared of. Yeah. This is taking a lot of preparation and discipline, though, but you allocate the time for that because you think it's so important. There's times when I just throw my handbags out and they'll sod it. I'm just going to put them up there. There's times that I just go, oh, whatever. You know, and I'll just put it up on a tree and just go home. 
What about countering your own smell by putting some Calvin Klein obsession or some catnip or some kind of lure? Do is smell attractive to a cat. One thing I really don't do is feed my dog raw steak before and then without washing my hands or anything like that, or anything that's come that might smell. I never ever use animal bait, particularly chicken or lamb, um, when it comes to cats. My attractant is rancid fish oils, and what I'm trying to do is not attract the cat, but attract the fox and the badger to use that scent. It makes them scent on the spot. Yeah. So what I want is where two paths cross and specifically all the paths on that ridge line kind of go through. And often what I do is I'll prepare a spot six months before by dragging trees around. Um, so the animals have to go through one spot and it works that they, they, they will go down. It'll be, the, it's the badger that makes all the paths. The badger specifically goes through and the deer and that six months later, I'll put a cam on it. I'll put a camera 10 foot back and off in a very subtle nonchalant sort of, spot where i'll stand on the spot and i'll look around and i'll look where's the most unobvious spot where are you not going to look and it's got to be on a tree that's in shade that is just slightly back and slightly behind mm. and i'll even put a, another tree at an awkward angle so the animal will look at that and then i'll put two branches across the path the first branch is at knee height and it means that an animal will smell that sniff it and have to step over it or go under it a, a leopard specifically will have to stop there and jump over it or move under it. The second branch I'll put on the ground and over the other side of the path to the, the trail cam that I've got up behind me. And the idea is that the, the, any animal coming along has to jump over the first one, stops, and they sniff facing the opposite way. So all their attention is on the opposite side of the path to my trail cam. So I'm, I'm getting all of the attention from the animal onto whatever's going on in front of them and not from my trail camera. And that works. Most animals will stop and they'll sniff. But what I notice is when you watch deer, they will sniff. And my dog does as well. They'll sniff the very tips of branches and they'll sniff any branch that's crossed the path. And if you've put your hand on it, they'll bolt. I've done this before. I've experimented and rubbed my hand on um, a branch. And I've, I've got a video of the deer coming up to sniff it and literally gone whoosh, gone. Yeah, there's a science and an art to this and uh, you can get lucky. But I think... Um you have a very disciplined approach and, and stick to your methods and let's hope you get rewarded. You know, I try it both ways. The, the way I say it is we're not getting results on cameras. Why? And my answer is, well, let's just step it up again. Let's look at every single uh, attention to detail from a fishing background. If you're not getting results, attention to detail, you fine tune this, fine tune that. And you go through all the things that you're doing until eventually you do something where it was wrong you're now getting it right yeah and it's fun i really enjoy it when i'm walking through the forest and i'll see a great camera spot i think wow this is great and i'll get in there because i'll carry secateurs and um, scissors and that and i'll cut down all the branches and i'll make the perfect spot and i'll pull trees around good six months before and i think that'll be perfect for autumn i really really enjoy camming my trail cams sometimes people do see them and when they see them, they're, they're, people tend to be impressed with them to the point that they don't want to steal them. They, they get that the person putting it up there has put some heart and soul into it and created the thing of beauty. And so they don't think, oh, I'm going to steal that. Wonderful reverse psychology. Now, let's say you get your 10 out of 10 cat smiling to camera footage. Is that the end game? Or do you think, right, I've got a puma, I now want a leopard, or I've got a leopard, I want a mother and cub, or I want to, I want to find its den site or whatever? definitely uh, a skipping moment 
<laughs> I, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I'll be honest with you. Because well, when you get a first 10 out of 10 photo, you think, what's going to do? You've got to look further down the path mm. and all the doodies that's going to hit the fan when a 10 out of 10 photo of a leopard or a puma in England comes out. That's going to take some talking about that as what, you know, what we're going to do with that. Beyond the tactical judgment about you know how you release it and with what communication, is it going to spur you on to do more or are you going to relax and think, I've absolutely nailed it and cracked it and I've achieved my objective? It's not about proving that they exist. It's not about getting a photo. It's about enjoying existing in the forest with them and it's enjoying learning about the animal's behaviour. I've learned so much more from being in the forest at night with a head torch than I have ever during the day. You walk through the forest during the day, you see nothing. You just see bits of scat and dog footprints and that, you know. You might see the odd deer, but most of the time when you see a deer, you see its backside disappearing. You go in there at night and this deer, the same deer that you'll see disappearing 200 yards, will be standing there 10 yards away just looking at you going, what on earth is that? What proportion of times are you not using some illumination? Because your eyes adjust very quickly and you will pick up more if you're not illuminating things. I always have... Because um, I was so surprised about this when I first heard when I was a kid about uh, lamping. I thought, I can't work. what are you on about? Going into the forest with a great big torch, every animal's going to run miles. They don't. But I always have the head torch on because it's safe at night in the forest with a head torch because you can see the eye shine at 200 yards. No leopard, no puma can creep up on me, really. Because as soon as they look up and they see me, I see their eye shine. What I'm expecting to happen is I'll be walking along the path one night and I'll see eye shine at 100 yards distance and I expect, hopefully, the leopard will, you know, obviously going to see the, the torch coming up the path and it will just lope off into some bushes probably 50 yards up the path and expect me to, to watch me walk past like it has done a thousand other times with humans. Except I'll have a camera and I'll have seen, clearly see his eye shine and I'll be able to video it. But yeah, I'm being very obvious. It's like an old fishing trick. When you go lure fishing, you use a purple or an orange lure. And the fish have never seen that before. And they just kind of grab it. And this is a similar thing. Animals have obviously never seen uh, this bright light in that part of the forest before. Yeah. But they just ignore it, some of them. Or a fox. You know, I've squeaked them in. And that, that, those, it's amazing how fast they come running up to you. And I've actually said, whoa, whoa. You know, it's about six foot from me. And I'm saying, well, just calm down, mate. Calm down, you know. Yeah. Can we put that one on the website? That is remarkable. That the fox doesn't flee from you as, as soon as it knows what you are. It stops and has a almost listens to you closely to uh, as you as you say hello. We can do if you want. Yeah, yeah, we, we can do. Yeah. Um, I'm, to, to be honest, I'm literally I've only just got the camera and it's shaky and it's, it's yes. but that's literally that's three nights and I've had to cut a lot of footage out of it because there's so much wildlife that you get to see with a head torch and that you can video if you've got the right camera. Well, we'll put some snippets, you know, we'll, we'll make a judgment about a, a couple of snippets to follow it, uh, this up on the website under episode 55, and we'll, we'll co- yeah. consider what, but we'll, the, certainly if people want to follow this up by looking at some of your stuff, it'll be on the website, so that's great. And we're running out of time, but we decided we were going to, after a lot of agonising on Word of the Week, we would just stick to something simple, and we haven't done mm. Habitat, which is, you know, the home environment and the home sort of vegetation biome of wildlife, things like coppice woodland or sand dunes or a wood pasture or salt marshes those are all habitats but so are people's yeah. gardens and so are thick commercial forests and so it's your call on why habitat is a significant thing to think about for our big cats well 
for me, I've heard numerous times that there can't be any big cats in the UK because there's no wilderness. There's not enough wilderness. They'd be up halfway up Snowdonia. And I find that animals, intelligent animals, they are right in Cockton next year in a, some quiet spot where they know they're safe, like a fox on the garden shed. You know, they're happily sun way out there all afternoon because they know it's safe. Animals intuitively learn very, very fast. Same as the, the, the fox did on my trail camp. It was scared first time. Second time or third time I looked at it, absolutely fine. It knew it had worked it out. But what I was thinking with habitat is because the majority of our countryside is private. Most of the woods around here, the forestry is private. Nobody goes in there. Most of the farms, we have crisscrossed footpaths, but all of that cornfield, it can easily get in the middle of that. You're out smart, you can get away from you in daytime, you would never see it. Well, an example of that, James, is I've just, before we came on tonight, I've had Wendy from Lincolnshire, who was on the podcast, episode 13, I think it was, she was saying earlier on today, she was walking her six dogs and there's wheat being planted near her, where she is at the moment in Lincolnshire. And she heard the leopard's warning call and it really spooked the dogs. And so, yeah, that was in wheat. And in fact, the um, deer stalker that we heard from in the last episode was saying that... um, crops you know agricultural crops do make good cover they're rarely very low they're soon bolting away and being high enough to hide a leopard or a puma or a lynx and that's what wendy claims she heard today i've also heard this week in the edinburgh area uh, through paul mcdonald of uh, a big black one being seen three nights running by different people in residential gardens including on a on a a flat roof uh, garden shed summer house possibly sensing uh, local dogs because that garden where it was seen there's three dogs that um, live there and all this is all sort of late at night and on a railway line behind the houses I just just use railway line which is now cycleway footpath so again this is where these cats are being seen uh, as well as halfway up Snowdon and in the middle of the Lake District because we have had sightings this year 2021 in those kinds of locations so it is remote deep wilderness as well as residential suburban locations yeah it's these little sanctuary spots little out of the way spots like railway sidings you know parts of the hedgerow and scrub and wasteland you, you know where you've got particularly at the moment where you've got a, a factory that's shut down and there'll be a part out of the back of it which maybe is and lots of rabbits in the in the brambles but I think it's also because they are generalists, isn't it? Although I do think there's this concept of optimum habitat. What's the optimum habitat for big cats and something like a lynx if you're going to reintroduce lynx? And I, I tend to think that's a sort of false concept for a generalist cat like a leopard or a lynx or, or, or a puma. But I, I think also there are locations like Heathland and some sort of national nature reserve situations and other nature reserves which are very high on wildlife value and, and very bio diverse very diverse in in rich and wildlife and you do get the cats seen there maybe that those are the places where they're all crossing them they've all got a sort of coalesced territory because there's so much deer activity and so many small mammals for them to pilfer and that's where they there's more breeding and there's more mothers and cubs in those kinds of situations i walked through a ridgeline it was just a couple of nights ago and i saw two deer on a four-hour walk and that was it there was nothing wrong with it there was loads of vegetation i was expecting to see lots of badgers like you know i've got in the video and foxes crossing and nothing and i didn't see any scat and i didn't see any rabbit scat either i didn't see any rabbit droppings and there was a couple of deer marks but nothing and literally four hour walking two deer and that's the the least i've seen both of those deer as soon as they saw my headlamp they were gone 
what I'm trying to say is that some areas, though it looks in the day, you couldn't tell any different. But night, it's very different than this particular ridge line. I wouldn't bother again because there was no game there. There's nothing to eat for the leopard or the puma. Whereas other areas, um, that this particular one particular hotspot, there's sheep, there's hare, there's badgers, there's fox, <laughs> there's tons of deer in there. In terms of your attitude towards the cats emotionally, where do you stand on that? I've got three words here. Cats are cats. That's what I wrote down for that. They are what they are. And there's no point in being upset with them. If, if something happens to me, okay, it's slightly different because I know what I'm doing. Mm. But I do feel that we need a society to somehow educate people with young children and people with small dogs that there are leopards and pumas about and that you just need to be aware i mean the, the chances of running into one and even if you do run into one you know the chances are they're going to disappear but you should know and, and that's a really hard state to get into i think what you're doing here with this podcast is the best way to do it to gradually you know it's it's there what i did i, I went and spoke to the forestry so i've told them you know I'm, I'm, what else can i do i when i first had the, the close encounter and the days after it that i went in there and i'd see women alone with headphones on running into the forest at dark and i'd want to go up and say look excuse me like, you can't you, you just can't do you understand what i mean because they look at you like you're some weird psycho madman or something or trying to chat them up or something i agree i followed up big cat reports and seen parents with toddlers uh, innocently wandering through enjoying themselves and i thought there's no way i can let on why i'm here uh, they won't yeah. believe me and i would potentially scare them if they did and nothing's happened they're going to say to me well nothing's happened if, the, if there's been sightings for decades nothing's happened yet so why bother now it's uh, <laughs> I mentioned last episode, you know, this is the wicked problem, isn't it? What do you do? How do you communicate it other than slowly and gradually? I've just mentioned Wendy in Lincolnshire, and she mentioned that as soon as she knew about it, she went and told all the neighbours, especially uh, drove around, you know, the local area where she was and told people, especially with kids, and she got scoffed at by most of them. So you're on a hiding to nothing. It's terribly challenging, but talking it through. One thing I can say is that in certain localities where... For example, close in private woodland where I've seen big cats, they all know about them. They all love them and that they have families there and children But because they know about them. The kids go out and play in the forest, but they know what's there. You know, they, they said to me, no, so, so if you ever t- you know, we're going to be really unhappy with you. If you tell people about where this is, we're going to be coming and visiting you because we love our cats. Please don't tell anyone where our cats are. Because I've met these people at two in the morning chatting to him in the forest and you know it's quite an enlightening experience when you're walking around looking for a puma and you suddenly bump into another sort of forestry type person and you chat to them and they've got kids and they've got their whole family there and for generations back they've known about these uh, big cats when i was a kid i used to love going night fishing uh, and i was after the monster from the deep and you'd sit there as the sun went down and bats come out and the moon comes up and it's heaven and you're sitting there and there's this monster out in the darkness somewhere. And it's the same thing with big cats, except I'm in the forest with them. And there is nothing compares to the adrenaline rush, the sense of anticipation when you walk along a path at night and you know that there's leopards about. And any second, the next eye shine could be, you know, a big leopard staring back at you. It's really exciting. I mean, the hairs on the back of your neck don't even come close. 
but it is tiring. It's really stressful if you're there seven nights a week, up to six hours a night walking, because I don't ever stop. I don't ever sit down. It's constant on the go because I've got a head torch. Animals don't come towards the head torch. You go towards them and then they're okay. And then they yeah. gradually drift off. And that seems to be how it works. And so, oh, sorry, I'm phased out again. Yeah, sure, we are flagging. This is going to be a long, epic episode. As we're winding down, I'm going to say thank you for a very experiential hour and a half. It is. But what I wanted to say is that there's nothing compares to walking in the forest and knowing that any second you can come face to face with a leopard. It's really special. I was going to say it gives it an extra bite, but I, I, I don't think I'm going to go with that. When you're doing this night after night, the tension builds because I'm constantly tactically aware. I'm constantly looking around. I'm constantly aware of where the torch is. And the torch has to be on the ground most of the time because I don't want it light up everywhere. And then I'll just lift it up and I'll sweep through around and put it back down on the ground. And I'm constantly on tension. And there's been a couple of times once the other night when I almost trod on a badger. And, oh, my God. Me and the dog jumped about three foot up in the air. The badger didn't really move. It was a long bracken. And I'm going there, please don't tread on a leopard. Please don't tread on a leopard. And suddenly this badger breaks up and it's going, wow, 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 and it's right by my feet. And I was going, help. And yeah, I really jumped on that. And another time with a badger, I was walking through long grass in this, this field. And, and I was just really sort of tense because I hadn't had any sleep for a couple of days. Um, and, I, and I'm walking along and suddenly this badger breaks cover and runs across literally six feet in front of me. And again, I, whew, <laughs> you really do jump on that. Yeah, it's awesome. Great. Well, is it finally anything that we've not covered? We're, we're well over time, but I'm sure listeners will forgive us because it's all been such good value. Anything we've not said that you want to emphasise? What can I say? You know, we've got the habitat because it's private and nobody goes there. And that's the, the niche area that, the, for any animal. They like to slip into these sanctuaries. Carp do it in lakes. If you have a sanctuary over carp lake where people go fishing, all the carp are in there. They know it's safe. You know, you can watch them and feed them in there and they're not scared of humans. They just understand it's safe. They've learned. So we've got that habitat and we've also got prey species. We've got a deer population of 10,000 plus. We've got munchak, we've got roe, fallow, seeker, red deer, Chinese water deer. And then on top of that, we've got rabbit, pheasant, rats, small birds. And then we've got all called takeaway species like uh, chicken, um, outdoor livestock. I I call it lambuna. And the best bit for the big cats is nobody knows they're here. Yes that's big cat heaven i agree i think they have an easier time here any leopard or puma would rather be in britain than anywhere else i think uh, Mm. because of all of that yeah and that's perhaps why they've got more flexible territories and we find it difficult to keep up with them because they're not hemmed in they wander more flexibly yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. which makes it more challenging for us also their behavior in england is different i think leopards react to humans and they avoid humans, whereas in Africa, they'll avoid lions. Yeah. And so one last thing, the, the black coat. Yeah. I think a leopard grows up with a black coat, a, a black cat grows up with a black coat, and they know instinctively that they can't catch rabbits in an open field, and they learn very young age, watching their parents, to stick to the shadows all the time. They're in that shadowy part of the tree. And I know from experience when I go kayaking at night on a full moon, if I just glide down the inner shadow by the trees, nothing can see me. I'm right in the shadow in the darkness. And a big cat will know that and they'll stick to that. And that will be their niche hunting thing. And that the black is perfect for them. They know their strengths and weaknesses and they play to their strengths. Brilliant. James, that's so good. 
thank you so much for guiding us through oh, your nighttime environment yeah, and uh, uh, i'm sure we'll look for an excuse to have you back and also we'll be looking out for progress in your work i'm really surprised you haven't heard anything you know i'll be listening to uh, get any feedback about you hearing something because you know you're likely to be in hearing distance from one of these and you like like wendy in lincolnshire said she had a warning cough from a leopard today in the wheat field so you know you might get that one day and um i look forward to hearing about it maybe my territory is different maybe because she's in farming land. Yeah. There's so many maybes. This is the thing I love about it, is we're learning about behaviour. And the animals we have here, I think they're very intelligent, and they've got a different behavioural pattern from animals in different countries, the same species in different countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. James, I'm off to find the football results. and. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I want to thank you. I'm sure listeners have absolutely loved it, and great to be in your company again. Thanks so much for coming on. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, everyone. Cheers, Rick. Okay, I just mentioned some recent sightings reports, and I've a couple more to add which relate to past episodes. First of all, thanks to Dan, who has heard of a recent report on Kintyre on his travels there. So it's interesting to hear about some potential fresh activity on the Kintyre Peninsula. And also thanks to Anne. She was our guest from Anglesey on episode 51. She's just passed on a report she's heard from contacts this month, July 2021. Apparently four witnesses all watched a black panther leaping onto a tree bough and into the tree on Anglesey. So let's hope that tree can be monitored in some way in case there's future activity there, perhaps with a trail camera. And talking of North Wales, we will have a guest from mid-North Wales next time. She is a town councillor and has had two different sightings and she's heard of others in the area. Way east of that, we'll also be speaking to a taxi driver from Suffolk about his close-up view of a large black cat, and he then started talking to passengers about it and received other reports that he'll tell us about. So, hope you can join us back for that one, episode 56, next time. OK, we're signing off now, so thanks again to James for all his help with this edition, and you can see a few photos on the website those will be under episode 55 on the references and links page of Big Cat Conversations. Righto, thanks for listening in. Take care and bye for now.